Hello and welcome to our midweek podcast. Uh, If you've been tracking with us as we've gone verse by verse through the Gospel of John, you know that we usually do these on Sundays and not midweek, as is the case now on a Monday afternoon. But I'm here with Coulter Batterton, and we are doing a midweek podcast today because some of you will remember that we interviewed Bo Olson, uh, not the Sunday yesterday, but the Sunday before, we kind of bumped the teaching for that week and decided to interview Bo, which was hugely, hugely uh, impactful and fruitful for us as a community. If you haven't listened to that podcast, I would once again recommend that you go back and listen to it from that Sunday. It was phenomenal. Uh, but as a result, we kind of bumped this teaching from a Sunday to a midweek. And so uh, what we're going to do is uh, I'm here with Coulter. It's going to be more conversational, but we're going to read these verses uh, from the Gospel of John, where John the Baptist here in chapter 3 is for a second time uh, testifying publicly about who Jesus is. And then we'll just share some thoughts conversationally on that passage and maybe uh, some things that are standing out to us or that could be uh, really challenging, I think, for us as a church and a community to embrace as we follow after Jesus. Uh, So, Coulter, why don't you get us started with reading the passage, and then we will uh, pray for our time, and then share some thoughts. Yeah, great to be with you guys today. Um, This is from John 3, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John, John also was baptizing at Anion near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, He is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Awesome. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you uh, would just guide us in simple conversational interpretation of this passage and that you would draw out or tease out the things that you really want us to hear and wrestle with as a community. And ultimately, yeah, would your kingdom come and would your will be done uh, through us, through these simple conversations and through what you do in our community with real people wrestling with real stuff Uh, in real places. So be with us, guide our conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Coulter, you and I uh, haven't really had a chance to talk about this passage, but uh, we just met up a few minutes ago and had a chance to say, hey, anything stand out to you? Uh, Here's some stuff, what stood out to you? And I think some of it will kind of line up uh, in terms of what naturally jumps out Uh, from a passage like this. But for me, one of the big things that really stood out was just John the Baptist and who he is and sort of his character and even uh, the model that he is of sort of a disciple and a church leader. 
Uh, Jesus at one point says, you know, John the Baptist is the greatest person who's ever lived, essentially, uh, which obviously excludes Jesus himself, but he speaks really, really highly of John, which in my mind just sort of makes me pay attention more to passages like this. We don't get a ton of glimpses of John the Baptist and what he says. We don't get, you know, his version of Sermon on the Mount or anything like that, but we do get to see how he responds in these uh, sort of key and beautiful situations. And in the passage that we are, you know, kind of walking through today, it says that he, his disciples are sort of uh, in an argument, and they're arguing with Jewish people over ceremonial washing, but there are also, there's this sort of argument and tension growing between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. And then there's this statement, I'm imagining sort of an argumentative, competitive environment, and they say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, like, look what he's doing. He's baptizing and everyone is going to him. And I'm just thinking about and reflecting on like what, what a moment that is in the life of John the Baptist or really in any church leader. And as I was driving over here and just thinking about that line, like, look, this person who, you know, you, you say you're friends with or whatever, they're actually like detracting from your ministry and people are leaving what you're doing and they're going over to this other person. And as I was driving in and just thinking about that, I was realizing that from a pastoral perspective, uh, there's just sort of an inbuilt pain that happens in ministry. And there's inbuilt joy as well, which we could talk about on another podcast. But I think what's important is to see John dealing with the pain. And I realized as I was driving over, like as someone who's in church leadership, there's pain if your ministry doesn't grow. And there's pain if your ministry does grow, which we call growing pains, which is like, oh, we, we love that, but it's also still painful. And then there's pain when your ministry shrinks. And so it's almost like at every stage, unless you've just gone through explosive growth and you happen to be on that plateau, then you're like, oh, maybe there's not a ton of, you know, pain in regarding numbers. But outside of that, it's like there's pains when you're small, there's pains when you're not growing, there's pains when you are growing, there's things that are painful about being big, there's things that are painful about shrinking. And so we can, I think, look to scripture and guys like John the Baptist to think about oh, what does it look like to do that in a healthy way and to experience those things. And John's experienced all those things. He started small, he exploded. He was sort of, I don't know if you'd really call it properly the mega church of his day, but there's thousands of people streaming to him in the desert. And now he's shrinking in a pretty short amount of time. It's just like exploded overnight and now it's sort of beginning to collapse overnight in a sense. And so just the pain that that brings John in the midst of that, uh, but with it, I think there's a word about uh, sort of the, the divisiveness and competitiveness with which John's disciples naturally approach the problem, and then the sort of stark contrast with which John himself uh, thinks about or approaches the problem. So um, any thoughts on, on that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that came to mind, and even when we were just talking about it, I mean, the first thing I said to you was, John's a cool dude. Yeah. Um, and just the way that he approaches ministry and the way that he approaches his um, yieldedness to what God had for his life, which was a very specific purpose that was talked about in the Old Testament, which was to make the way for the Lord that's coming. Um, and yeah, that's an amazing um amazing and beautiful thing. I mean, he's the guy who is announcing that Jesus is coming into the world. I mean, that's a big, big deal, announcing his ministry that's coming. Um, but I think we're, it's really easy for us to forget that there's also, there is pain that you're talking about in that, you know, with the announcing of Jesus, his ministry coming, and then with the arrival of Jesus coming, um, that's his ministry. I mean, his ministry was the announcement and the kind of the starting point for Jesus to have a launching pad. And I think it would have been very natural and very human of John to be jealous of that. Um, and even his disciples are jealous for him and saying, hey, like, he's baptizing people too. Like, you used to do that. Like, right. wh what's different about his baptism? Like, what, what is it, what is about that? And time and time again, John's response is, um, 
that like, you, you know, hey, it's not about me. Mm. It's about the kingdom of God and it's about Jesus. It's about what he's going to do. Um, and I think he gives such a beautiful model of what it looks like for us um, because we, you know, we're going to go through the same things in our own lives of um, people coming up and taking over um, the things that we've built. And maybe that's hard for you and I to see right now because we're younger. Right. Um, but for people who are advanced in years or have been doing ministry for 50 years, I think of Ray and Terry, who really have been great examples of what it looks like to pass on ministry. Um, but we're going to have to go through those same things too um, in learning how to pass on and kind of let go of what God has done through us. Right. And I think you see a wrestling in what you're saying with like, what we'll experience, but also what John the Baptist experienced, there's sort of this wrestling of like, who am I doing this for? And because I think, especially when you're in church ministry, that these things can kind of get conflated. And so we can come to this model or this place of saying, like my church, my ministry, my discipleship movement, whatever I'm building is the equivalent of the kingdom of God. Uh, is the equivalent of kind of like the glory of Jesus. And so the only way for Jesus to have glory is for my reputation to grow and my platform to grow and my church to grow. And it's very easy to slip into that with, in terms of like ministry mentality, that there is no difference between like, if the kingdom of heaven is to grow in Spokane, it's because it's our church is growing. And if our church is shrinking, then, you know, Jesus and the kingdom are shrinking. And this story really challenges that where in the big picture, the kingdom of heaven and the glory of Jesus is growing. And John gets that and he sees that and he plays into that even to sort of the demise of his own ministry. And I feel for even the pain of his disciples who are like, this is our home, this is our movement, this is what we do. Like we're, they're side by side, they've sacrificed to be with John the Baptist and sort of support his ministry. And so I think there's something that's really stunning about that line from the passage where he says, no, I have to become less so that he can become more. And there's a sense in which every one of us has to do that with our own egos and our own flesh, in a sense. Like my flesh has to become less so that the spirit can become greater within me. My ego has to be, you know, sort of crucified and set aside so that Jesus can be then glorified. It's no longer I who live, you know, Paul says, but the son of God is living in me. All of us as disciples have to go through that. But then the odd thing is that in ministry, that gets kind of like mixed up. Like sometimes we actually inflate our egos in the process of saying, oh, it's about my ministry and my platform and my name and my reputation. Uh, and so I think that the story of John the Baptist and his witness is a prophetic witness for every disciple of Jesus who will come after him. But it hits even harder, I think, against some of our modern church sort of uh it's about me and my ego and and that's what gives rise to i think like the celebrity pastor who's ultimately like no the bigger i am the bigger jesus is which is really different from the way that john thinks about things and conceptualizes things uh so i'd like to talk about uh church tension and competition and church division but i don't want to leave this section too early so do you have any other thoughts on sort of like the relationship between our sort of ego and even our ministry and our discipleship thing and sort of our tribe uh, versus like actually like Jesus and the kingdom and how we can get mixed up in that and think, no, the, the bigger I am, the bigger Jesus is. Any thoughts on that before we kind of segue or move on to what I'd like to talk about, which is kind of church division? Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that comes to mind to kind of cap off the stuff that we've touched on is that, um, you know, for the last 20 or 30 years, and this is something you've touched on a lot, we've been told that Christianity is dying. Mm. And the only reason I bring that up is um, because, yes, maybe Western Christianity is falling down, but the kingdom itself isn't, mm. you know, it's advancing at some of the biggest rates that it ever has in history. And I think it's really important for us to in that same way that John the, John the Baptist is reminding us that it's about the kingdom of God, that we don't get focused on ourselves and say, hey, just because the kingdom isn't growing in a place like San Francisco, that doesn't mean the kingdom of God isn't flourishing somewhere else, or it doesn't mean that the kingdom of God isn't um, becoming greater 
um, it may just not be exactly in the way that we planned it or thought. Mm. And I think learning how to set aside that, it is really that ego and the pride of like, mm. am I willing to allow my own ministry to shrink so that the kingdom can grow? Mm. And that's, it's so counterintuitive in America because right. we think if the kingdom's going to grow, then I'm going to grow with it. Mm. And yet John the Baptist says, no, I have to become less so that wow. he can become greater. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that layer of like, what does it look like? You know, John's figuring out what does it look like to celebrate this other ministry that seems to be in competition with mine that's now growing and eclipsing mine. But then on a bigger scale, you could think about that almost internationally of what does it look like for us to celebrate what God is doing in the nations globally um, while sort of properly lamenting what is happening at, um, you know, at a, at a local level or a regional level and saying, what does it look like for us to like pray big prayers locally and lament what we see uh, happening with some of the trends in our culture, but at the same breath say, we're actually not the center of the universe. You know, John's able to say, no, my ministry can die here and the kingdom of God is going to be okay. Uh, and again, that's very counterintuitive for us. And so Along those same lines, though, maybe we'll actually table the church division competition thing uh, for a few minutes because I think what this naturally lends itself to, like, how does John the Baptist cope with all of this? Why, how is he able to do it so well? How is he able to cope with what's essentially his ministry dying in his hands? What starts as a trickle and then maybe hundreds and then maybe thousands of people who are walking away from him for, for, for another guy, you know? Um, how does how does he practically do that? How do we walk in his footsteps? And I think there's this this key line. So the disciples, his disciples, say, Dude, you know, this other guy that you uh, thought you were friends with, look what he's doing. He's baptizing, and now everyone's going to him. Like that was our deal. We were the only ones who baptized Jewish people. Like we were the cutting edge. We were the people who did that. Uh, that's our game. And now he's like he's copying us, and he's doing this, and now we're shrinking, and he's growing. And then there's this line, a beautiful line from John the Baptist in verse 27, where he says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Uh, and to me, this is the, just the epitome of somebody who, uh, in the language of the, of the emotionally healthy church, who's receiving the gift of limits. They're saying, no, I am a limited human being. Elsewhere in here, in the very next line, actually, verse 28, he says, I am not the Messiah. I've already testified to that. I'm testifying to it again. Like, I'm not the Messiah. I have a limited role. Uh, I, I am a limited person. And then in the next paragraph, he says, I'm, you know, I'm from the earth. I'm not the, I'm not the heavenly man. I'm not transcendent. I'm not, you know, all-powerful, I'm from the earth, I'm not the Messiah, and I can only share with you what I've received. Like I'm, and I'm not gonna transcend that. I'm not gonna try and become something more. I'm not gonna try and uh, hold on to this thing that I should be giving up in the form of my ministry or power or fame. Uh, and ultimately that manifests itself in the humility to say, he must become greater, I must become less. But there's, there's this, yeah, beauty of receiving the gift of limits. And we, in, when we covered chapter 1 in the verse of John, we talked briefly about that because in chapter 1, again, he's sort of modeling receiving the gift of limits. But for those who aren't familiar with this, I just want to read. This is from the book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. And I picked it up a few minutes ago. I read this book once every, like, one to two years. I read this book, and it just, like... Oh, it just kills me every time. It's so good. But it's probably been a year or two since I've read it, so I'm due to read it again. But just a few minutes ago, right before we started the podcast, I flipped open uh, to the emotion. This is the Emotionally Healthy Church, principle number four. There's a chapter on receiving the gift of limits. And I just want to read the introduction here to give us a concept of what does that mean? When we talk about receiving the gift of limits, what does that mean? And why is that? why would that ever be a good thing in our American culture where the whole idea is to transcend our limitations, where sort of that's our fantasy is what we talked about uh, from chapter one in the book of John. But this is what it says, receiving the gift of limits. It says, emotionally healthy people understand the limits God has given them. They joyfully receive the one, two, seven, or 10 talents God has so graciously distributed. As a result, they are not frenzied and covetous 
trying to live a life God never intended. They are marked by contentment and joy. Emotionally healthy churches also embrace their limits with the same joy and contentment, not attempting to be like another church. What a line. They have a confident sense of God's good hand on their church, quote, for a time such as this. And I, I didn't even have time to read the chapter. It was just that intro, and I was just brought back into that world of, oh my gosh, this is actually such a counterintuitive, beautiful thing that leads into a bigger conversation about how we lead our lives, that we lead our lives at a, a frantic, frenzied, covetous pace uh, because we don't embrace this. We don't just say, no, I'm of the earth, and I'm not the Messiah, and uh, this is who I am, and this is what God has called me to. So uh, any thoughts generally on receiving the gift of limits or maybe the role that played in John's life or Jesus' life or the role it should play in our life? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it on the head when you said that it's so un-American. It's just, I mean, we're taught and raised to improve, to compete, to be the best, to make things more efficient, to make things more fun, whatever it is, it's about taking what is less and making it greater. It's the exact opposite of what John the Baptist says. Right. Um, that's, that's the American way, through and through. Um, and so when you hear something like the gift of limits, um, I think at least my immediate reaction is like, well, I don't, I don't need that gift. Like, that's so awful. Yeah, that's I don't, I don't, I, it's not a gift. Like a gift of limits, like um, it just seems so, it, it's just so counterintuitive to what we've been taught. Um, and as you were sharing, I was just reminded of this quote that I've written down. Um, and it's by George Eliot. And it says this, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And I think it's just so tough for us um, to be willing to live lives that are unhistoric because everyone is telling, the American dream is literally saying, like, make history. Be a part of history. Be the thing that you can be. Make your mark. And you see John the Baptist who is just so simply saying like, hey, I did what God told me to and I don't have to do anything else. Like that's enough for me. It's enough for me now to go into obscurity and have my head chopped off. Like that's it. That's, that's, that's good for me. And I know that doesn't make sense to you guys, but he's got to become greater and I have to become less. I love that you just used the word obscurity because when you were like halfway through explaining that, I just had this phrase come to mind that's like, I think ingrained in the American uh, sort of ethos or mentality or culture that's like, obscurity is death. Like that, just think about the way that that shapes our culture. It's this unspoken rule that obscurity is death. Uh, and I, I mean, you can trace that back generationally, how that's manifested itself with like Gen X and millennials and to some extent Gen Z. But over the last few generations, you could trace that, that idea that like obscurity is death. How has that shaped us? It's ridiculous to see the number of Gen X and millennials who thought they would be famous and wanted to be. They're like, my goal is to be famous. Like, that's it. And then it was in that context, people were already starving for that. And that was already like the cry of a generation or two before social media came out. And then, and I just think of that. I won't go into a huge rant on social, about social media, but I just think of like, man, that is this like fuel. That's like this Bunsen burner. That's just like fueling kind of the social media insanity is just this idea that obscurity is death. Like I have to be seen. People have to know my inner thoughts. They have to see how beautiful I can look. They have to see, you know, how clever I can be on Twitter. They have, if they could just see how good I am, they'll affirm me and I'll, I'll keep rising and I need to rise. I need to like have more likes day over day or year over year. I need to have more likes than the people around me. And like, oh man, I got 30 likes on my selfie, but my friend got 300. That's just a dagger, you know, in the stomach of just like, oh dude, like I'm just not 
I am slipping into obscurity and it kills us. It eats us alive. And so just the freedom, the true freedom to be able to say, I am not afraid of obscurity. Like that right there, that I think is, is part of the coolness of John the Baptist. He's, he's like, no, I'm good. I'm good with 10,000 lining up to hear me speak about the kingdom of God and be baptized. And I'm good now in the pain of decline as I slip into, in, into obscurity. And we just don't see that a lot. Uh, we, we just don't have a lot of good models of people uh, who embrace their limits in that way. And I think this is part of what fuels kind of the insanity of our culture. And just think about burnout. Just think about like how many of us can get like burnt out with life, burnt out with the pace of life, uh, or in a, in a parallel conversation, burnt out in ministry. Because we always want more and we don't know how to say no. And we are terrified of obscurity. And like we just like it just drives us to try and do and be and become things that we shouldn't be. There's, there's a healthy way in which we should be sort of transcending our flesh in favor of the spirit, transcending our apathy in favor of like zealous passion for Jesus and his kingdom. That we should be trying to, in some sense, discipleship is the journey of becoming something that we're not. You know, I'm not Jesus yet, but I'm trending that direction. I am with Jesus more and more. I'm becoming like him. And so there's this, that's the healthy version of doing it. But what we typically get is the unhealthy uh, version of doing it, which is where we're trending toward burnout. We try and take on way too much. We say yes to things that, that we shouldn't. And in ministry, we often kind of have this mentality of, I just want to burn out for God. I'm just going to like pour myself out until there's nothing left. If you want to survive as a disciple or uh, as a ministry leader or just a human being, like we have to see the wisdom of John the Baptist. We have to do the painful thing, which is to say no to things that look good and say, I'm not going to transcend that. Or in, or in John's language, like a person, I can only pass on what I've received from heaven. I'm only going to do the things that Jesus uh, has called me to do. So any thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, John the Baptist is just such a perfect example for us to see what it looks like to go from having fantastic ministry, doing something incredible for God, and then coming down in that slope into this valley and kind of fading out. And then, then it's even so cool to see that in Scripture you get to see John the Baptist wrestling at the end of that. Right. And he's like, oh my gosh, like Jesus, are you really the one? This is the guy who just said to his disciples, like, look, he's got to become greater, i got to become less. And yet, in scripture, we get to see him be like, well, shoot, like I'm about to get my head chopped off and that, that is rough. And like, what do I do about that? And so John the Baptist is such a beautiful example of us is, Hey, he's still human. He's still a person um, who's going to suffer from doubt, but what a great example of what it looks like to follow yielded to God. Mm, but, yeah. yeah. I actually love that moment too of the times of wrestling. And you see that with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which in some sense he's, he's wrestling with his limitations. The limitation of his circumstance is, this is the plan, I go to the cross. Um, and it's so, it's so human to just wrestle with our limitations and just say, God, is there any other way? <laughs> like, can I, can I go another way that sort of maybe transcends that? And that's ultimately the temptation of Jesus in the desert, right? Like transcend the way, the limitation that is the cross and do it all these other ways that I'll suggest to you. Uh, and so as a separate conversation, we've been talking about John the Baptist, uh, but we could, we could have a whole nother conversation about Jesus and the way that he, from the beginning, is taking on this stunning limitation of being human, you know, and he, he never sort of transcends that in the way that you or I would be tempted to transcend it. Like if you're God and man, you're like, oh, forget this. I'm going to like transcend, but he fully receives that as the ultimate limitation. And then there's, the, I think, what I would call the limitation of the cross, which he says, no, I'm going to receive this as my calling, as my gift, and not listen to the voice of the enemy that says, do it my way, because it'll be way more pleasant, and you can sort of transcend the limitation or the calling that God has given you. Uh, and ultimately, if you, if you have a copy of the Emotionally Healthy Church, if you don't have it, I would suggest that you buy it. It's a beautiful book and a challenging but beautiful read. 
Uh, but another thing that comes out of that chapter, uh, I was just flipping through it uh, just a few moments ago and just saw this quote or this idea that like, if we don't receive the gift of limits, we're essentially trying to live out a script that's not ours. It's as if we're auditioning for the wrong part in a play or something. And God's saying, that's not who you are. That's not who I've called you to. That's not the story I'm writing with your life. Stop doing that. You know, like stop reaching for that. Just receive this limitation that I want to, to give to you. Uh, Ray Lowe and Steve Oliver, who have been, you know, sort of uh, tremendous influences in both of our lives. I don't even remember which one would, would say it the most, but they would say, stay in your lane. And it was just the most beautiful, simple piece of advice, like stay in your lane. And that's honestly guided a lot of my path and a lot of the, the way that I do ministry is like, I'm not going to try and be somebody else. I'm not going to try and be another church. I'm not going to try and write a story that God's not writing. I'm going to receive the thing that he is doing and the person he does want me to be and the church that he does want us to become uh, and stay, stay in your lane. Like stop trying to be something that you're not. And I think that was uh, really the temptation of Jesus in the desert and the temptation of John the Baptist at multiple points in his ministry, but particularly at the end. Uh, it's throughout to say I'm not the Messiah, but then to watch the crowds leave because you're not. Uh, and you've embraced that and just sort of, he, he stayed in his lane. I think that's why Jesus says like, dude, this guy's the greatest. He's, he's just such a good disciple, such a good human being uh, because he stays in his lane, uh, as does Jesus all the way through uh, to the cross. So any other thoughts on just sort of that uh, being a healthy human being, a healthy disciple and, and follower of Jesus through receiving the gift of limits? Because if not, I think we have a few minutes left to turn the corner and talk about sort of uh, church division and where we see that at play in this process, in this passage, rather. Yeah, why don't we just go ahead and jump into that? Yeah, okay. I don't really know how to jump in because we've kind of had this theme of receiving the gift of limits and how we relate to Jesus and what uh, healthy ministry and healthy discipleship looks like. But one of the things that I was struck with as I was reading the passage before we sat down together uh, was just this idea of, you know, the, the disciples of John are arguing with a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. I, I think you, it, that Jew might be one of Jesus' followers, and they're kind of like debating like, and, and that leads to, because they come out of that disagreement then saying, dude, this guy over here, he's baptizing, he's doing it different than us. And it really, you know, tell him off, you know, like tell him not to do that. He's supposed to be your friend and now he's competing with you and people are going to him. And really this became for me, this image or this picture of like church competition and just the tendency as human beings, but, but even as Christians, I think there's this unique temptation to divide over stuff. And we can see that historically, obviously going all the way back here to where there's this temptation to make it like, dude, let's make it John the Baptist ministry versus Jesus ministry. And they can kind of debate whose ceremonial washing is the best and who's baptizing the right way and who's not and why the crowds are wrong for going to, you know, the new trendy guy instead of sticking loyally to John the Baptist. And it just speaks so powerfully, I think, to uh, sort of the, the politics of Christian ministry and the ways that we've divided over time. And even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking of like the Baptists and how they had a specific view of baptism and how that should be done and how that's caused splits. And then people have split again and then people have split again. And I've been, it's remarkable because I glanced at this verse, uh, these verses several weeks ago and never thought of it in this light. But just in the last 48 hours, like literally, if you had sat down and just asked me, what has God been teaching you or challenging you with over the last 48 hours? It's been the issue of church unity. And just like challenging me to think like, do you really truly love and embrace and walk in unity with people who don't do ministry like you do, or people who don't think about baptism the way that you do, or don't think about the Holy Spirit is a huge one for me. Like I'm so passionate about the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, and I want so badly to see that manifested in more and more in the life of our church. But then you bump up against people who don't like that 
and who talk down on that and who reject that. And, uh, and it caused, there's, there's so many opportunities within the Christian life and in ministry in particular for division. Uh, and I think you can see that in that, you know, if you were to look even at, uh, you know, Islam or Buddhism or some other religion, there are sects and different like sects or groups, subgroups within them that don't get along, but there's not a lot. You know, you'd be like, oh, there's like, you know, three of them, you know, or whatever, major, you know, divisions within Islam. And then you look at the, the, are at the at the Christian religion, and you say, well, there's the big one of like Catholicism versus Protestantism, uh, but then you go within Protestantism, and there's like, I don't even know how many. There's like ten thousand denominations or something of Protestants, who have just sort of subtly divided and divided and divided, and so and it just makes you think. I would say some of that can actually, it, there's, there's a silver lining in that it's that you have many expressions of church that reach and speak to many different types of people. And so there's, there is a beauty in that, but there's also a dark side, which is we're supposed to be the most unified people in the world. And Jesus says, the world will know that I am who I am. The world will know that I'm telling the truth by the unity and the love that you have with one another. Because you're gonna be one, through all of your crazy diversity, the world, that's actually gonna be the testimony to the world that I'm telling the truth and I'm back from the dead. Uh, and so as we kind of round out the podcast, I think it's worth speaking into that, that man, what is the state of the church today? And how can we look at John the Baptist and his followers then relating to Jesus and his followers? It's almost like the first opportunity for like a real church split. And I think in many ways, John the Baptist avoids that by uh, dying to himself in so many ways. But uh, what are your sort of initial thoughts on church division, church denomination, and what should be a radical unity across the body of Christ in the world? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think church divisions are largely over issues that I personally think aren't things we should divide over. Um, and one thing that I know you and I have talked about um, on several occasions is kind of the four D's, um, which is decide for, debate for, divide for, and die for. And so often in church history, um, going back to the writing of scripture, um, we're seeing people who are raising issues, something as simple as ceremonial washing. Right. And it's like, hey, yeah, let's get it. Let's get into it. Like, let's debate about it, John. Like, go, go debate with Jesus about this. Like, clearly he's doing it wrong. You know what you're doing. Um, and John the Baptist could have had that moment. I mean, Jesus said that he was the greatest born among women. I don't know how you could get a better compliment from the Son of God <laughs> than him saying, hey, you're, you're the best. Like, that's it. You're the greatest born among women. Um, and yet he, John the Baptist, just like, yeah, no. Like, we're not going to get into this. Like, that's, like, you're totally missing the point, guys. And I think we so are so quick to fall into that same trap of seeing someone who's doing something different. It could be baptism. It could be Calvinism. It could be Arminianism. It could be this. It could be that. It could be Catholicism or, you know, like the keys that the priests hold. I mean, there are so many different things that we've divided and argued over. Um, and I think we do the same thing as we look to our leaders and say, yeah, like, hey, you need to get into this. And more often than not, our leaders have said, all right, let's go argue about it. Totally. Instead of responding in the way that John the Baptist has. Right. Well, because there's this, um, oh, man, there's this sort of like kind of chest-thumping, competitive nature to what we're doing, to where it says like, dude, I can argue from Scripture that that dude is wrong, or even worse than that, that like he's an idiot and that I'm right and that what we're doing is right. And it's such an overwhelming temptation. Like, I can't tell you how many times as like someone who's in ministry and you see people you disagree with and maybe they're even slandering the way you do things. And you're like, you're going to slander me? Like, you're going to slander the way I do things when I'm utterly convinced that what I'm doing is more biblical than what you're doing. And it just like stokes this thing in you that's just like, all right, dude, we're going to throw down. Like, I'm going to get up and I'm going to, I'm going to get into the pulpit. I'm going to get in front of people and I'm going to tell them who they really need to watch out for and why like these people are being divisive and they're wrong 
and you know they're foolish and they're not interpreting scripture well and in the process i end up doing the same thing that they're doing in a sense you know i end up being the divisive person through that and it's seen as weak like when we talk about unity we see it as weakness like it, maybe we don't go to so far as to say that but sometimes we do like if i come in and i'm like dude guys we all need to be one because jesus said so most kind of like you know chest thumping evangelicals are going to be like that's that's some weakness like get out of here bro like we're gonna we're gonna stick to our line we're gonna fight our fight and honestly this has been part of what i've been wrestling with in the in the last 48 hours has just been getting before the lord and confessing and being like lord i i admit there are people even within the you know the evangelical world who just like i I'm just upset about the way they handle, you know, the Calvinism Arminian debates. Uh, I'm upset about what they teach on the Holy Spirit and, uh, you know, how we shouldn't be pursuing gifts of the Spirit. I'm upset, like, I'm, I'm confessing before the Lord, Lord, these people upset me uh, because the, and I think those, in my experience, are more of kind of the hot topic, divisive things today. If I were to say, hey, what is the evangelical church kind of fracturing and dividing over today? I personally was, it's not the things that were happening a generation ago or a hundred years ago. It's not what originally separated the Methodists from the Presbyterians from the Baptists. You know, like those are like, we're not having those arguments anymore. We're like, dude, who cares? Like, I haven't heard an argument about baptism Maybe ever, like, you know, I'm just like, oh, that's what the Baptists were dividing over. That's not what, nobody talks about that anymore. But there's just a new round of issues and new opportunities to divide. And in my personal experience within the evangelical world, it's you have a line or an opinion about the precise relationship between God's sovereignty and human free will. You identify as a Calvinist or an Arminian, and that's really important to you. Uh, maybe one that hits even closer to home for me is just the, the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. Um, and as I was kind of confessing and repenting of this thing, Lord, I want the world to know us for our, because of our love for one another. I want to walk in unity. I want to be willing to love and pour into and be the, for the success of churches that I don't theologically agree with. It's a hugely challenging thing. And so I'm like wrestling with that before the Lord. And it's kind, of, it's kind of a funny story, but that was one of the things I was confessing is like, Lord, I want to love people who really do not think highly of the Holy Spirit and who think that we should not be uh, receiving the Holy Spirit or operating in gifts of the Holy Spirit or any of that stuff, that the Spirit should not be manifesting himself in the life of the church. I'm like, that's just me confessing on, on podcast that that like that's a struggle for me to like love that specific brand of Christian and say I want to walk in unity with you we love the same Jesus uh, what is that going to look like and I as I've been like confessing those things God has actually literally in the last 48 hours uh, brought along several people just in the last two days who have interacted with who hold that mentality it was crazy. I was just like, God, I just try, just grow me in my love for these people. Help me walk in unity. And he's like, if you're serious, here you go. Here, have, have, and, and it was like church on Sunday. And then uh, after church, I uh, met up with some people and it was the same, the same thing like happened again. And it was like, oh my gosh, like this is real. I think God cares about this because I'm praying about it and he's bringing those specific people. And um uh, yeah, it was a beautiful thing for me to just say, like, Lord, I'm, I thank you for bringing this person right now. I want to grow with them. I want to su be supportive of them. I want to pray for them. I want to show the world what radical unity we can have in you. Because, God, like, Jesus actually speaks a lot about it, and he speaks really highly of it. And so I was, I've been wrestling through that and had multiple conversations that unfolded that way yesterday. And then uh, just a few hours ago, pulled up these verses again, and was preparing for the, you know, pulling together a few thoughts for us to have this conversation for the podcast, and it was right there. I was like, oh my gosh, dude, this is another reason why John the Baptist is the greatest, because, man, it's like everything's set. All you have to do is strike a match, John, and it's you versus them, and he wouldn't do it. Uh, and so I think there's something really beautiful about that, saying, you know what? People are leaving my church and rejecting the way I do ministry to go to that dude's church and accepting and the way he does ministry. And, oh, like, uh, what do I do? You know, what do I do with that? Do I strike the match? Do I start the controversy? Do I get this thing going? Or do I say, no, you know what? I'm going to stay in my lane. 
I'm going to work for church unity. I'm going to honor these other people because they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so uh, for most of us, I would say like 80% of evangelicals, it could be an issue of like God's sovereignty or the Holy Spirit. And you're hitting like what I think are two of the big hot button topics, but there's others too. Uh, maybe it's, you know, our views on race or, or social justice or whatever it is. There's other like hot topics that can divide us because you care a lot about that and I don't or whatever, or vice versa. And we're just like, dude, whatever, like you go do your thing and I'm going to go do my thing versus saying like, wow, God, you've made an incredibly diverse group of people and we're meant to walk in unity together, even if it costs us something, even if it hurts. Uh, and so that's not the end of the conversation for me. That's the beginning of what he's been, you know, speaking to me this week. Uh, but I think John the Baptist provides a really beautiful way uh, of showing how you can do that without causing division. So any, any final thoughts as we close here? Yeah, I think the last thing that's coming to mind just to kind of cap off the, the podcast and kind of the division stuff that we've been touching on is, there's a big temptation um, when you're seeing other people do ministry or when you're seeing other people who have been in your community go to a different ministry mm. um, to want to get really messy about it. And get really on Twitter. Yeah, like yeah. you want to you wanna throw the barbs, you want to say the things. Yeah. And um, I think that that's a temptation from the enemy. I really think it's, mm. it's this temptation to be like, hey, like, you know you're right. Like, you know, like, you know you could turn those stones to bread, right? Like, right. you know you could do it. Like, why don't you say it? Right like, just there. say it. Like, just, it's right there. Grab the fruit. You can it's do right it, man. There. It's totally in your power. And I think this goes back to something I think you shared a few weeks ago um, where it's someone said, you know, you know, following after sin is believing that God doesn't have your best intentions in mind. And I think this is so parallel with this. And it's like, hey, you know, saying that thing to a different, to another Christian that you don't need to say is not trusting that God has what's best for you. And that's really hard to think because in our minds it's, hey, we got to win the argument. we got to win the competition. We're better than them. Totally. But I, if, want, I want to yeah. take a theological baseball bat right. to your knees, yeah. and I can do it, and mm -hmm. it's so easy. Right. I just, I let mm -hmm. me, Lord, let me at them. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's behind a lot of that versus right. what you're saying. It's like, but what when you're doing that, mm -hmm. I can see Adam and Eve grabbing the fruit. Right. I can see Jesus mm -hmm. reaching out and turning stones to bread. I can see, mm -hmm. you know, just that, that transcendent, mm -hmm temptation mm -hmm. to just like i'm gonna take this i don't trust god mm -hmm. so i will take this into my own hands mm -hmm. and i'm gonna get it done right yeah i mean it really is the question is like are you willing to be unhistoric mm -hmm. and are wow. you willing to fade into obscurity and are you willing to become less Goodness. that's that's the question oh that's so, the question that's the question I, I think we should i think we should end it there uh, I think that's a beautiful place to end. And yeah, Coulter, maybe you could pray for us as we close because there was the one thing that you mentioned before we started the podcast is just the relationship between disunity uh, and like the, the, the outsider, you know, the atheist, the agnostic, the seeker, the person who just straight up doesn't know Jesus and the way they perceive the disunity and discord within the church. Uh, this is really important. Like some people would say, if we can fix this, like this is the issue. The issue is not our precise version of God's of God's you know sovereignty or how many points of Calvinism you love or what the precisely what you think about baptism or whatever the thing is, you know, ritual washing. That's not the issue. Like that's not what's turning outsiders away. That's not the thing we need to fix. The thing we need to fix is actually these inner attitudes that we've been talking about that lead toward unity, even if it, even if the cost is obscurity and the witness that that will ring out from the church when we get that right like that will speak volume this this is a mission of god issue uh, and so maybe you could just pray for us whatever from the heart whatever mm. stands out uh and we'll close the podcast here yeah mm. Mm. yeah jesus we just yeah, God, we just come right now and we even repent of the ways that we have sown seeds of disunity, God. Um, because we've all done it. We've all said the thing that we shouldn't have said. Um, we've talked behind the person's back. We've made fun of people. Um, we've mocked their beliefs. And these are, these are people who we're supposed to be brothers with. 
we're not even talking about non-believers. We're talking about people who claim to follow after you, Jesus, and we are so quick to cast the first stone right away. And Jesus, I pray that um, in our repentance, we can find that unity. I mean, how many times have we heard and seen of revivals are rooted in repentance? And so, God, we pray that um, this revival of unity that we want to see, um, you know, we have 10,000 fragments of the church, um, but when if they could all be put together, they could display this beautiful mosaic of what your church could be. But if they're just 10,000 pieces, then no one's going to see that picture if they're not brought together as one thing. And so, God, I pray that we can learn to sow seeds of unity with one another. Um, it's not going to be easy. Um, it's going to be really frustrating. And we're going to have to bite our tongue again and again and again. But, God, I pray that we could be rooted in your spirit to hear your voice when it says, hey, you don't need to say that. It's not the time to say that. Hey, just, just tell that person that you love them. And God, when there are times for us to say the truth and maybe speak our opinion, it's got to be done in love, God. So in those same moments when you say, hey, speak up, help us to do it in love. God, we love you so much. And we want to see your kingdom united and growing in the world. And that starts with us, God. And so we repent in this moment and we love you so much, God. May you become greater as we become less. In your name, amen.